come with me on an exploration of self-discovery. On this podcast, we decipher what really matters as we unravel the chaos of day-to-day work to learn how to build an essential life. At the end of this episode, you're going to be able to lead and influence others in a way that takes less effort, but produces better results and better relationships. Well, I think that's a pretty good value proposition. And I've invited my friend Stephen M. R. Covey onto the show to talk about that today. Stephen is the uber best-selling author of The Speed of Trust and Smart Trust. He's like the trust guru. Uh, And he's also the author of a marvelous new book, uh, Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. In full disclosure, I endorse this book. I love this book. And I love Stephen M. R. Covey even more. Stephen, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate your kind words, and I love you too. Uh, That's the best way to start. I I, want to give listeners a little more background, not even just of this book, but I wonder if we could start with a sort of Reader's Digest version of your life. (laughs) Like, I mean, starting at your birth all the way up to this moment, but just like, you know, just give us it in sequential order. Yeah, well, you know, I started um, my professional work. I, I did some real estate development, did a short stint in investment banking, and then I decided I was going to join up with my father. This was before he had written The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But I really? Knew before it, all I, of that? Before all of that. But I knew it was coming because he'd been mm-hmm. teaching it and talking about it, but he hadn't launched the book yet. What was and it he, called at that time? Was it called yeah. just the seven habits as it, as it eventually was, or was it called something different in that early version? Well, the, the earliest version was called the seven basic habits of yeah. highly effective people. Yeah. It was kind One of meant to say, these are fundamental basic things. Right. And uh, we, we ended up just shortening it to the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, but it had yet to come out, but I knew, I knew it was on the docket. And right. I really believed it was going to have a great impact on people. So when my father invited me and said, how would you like to be part of this? I said, you know what? This is going to go somewhere. I do want to be a part of it. So I joined. And the first 15 years, I spent kind of on the business side, mm-hmm. building the business, growing the company, taking it around the world, kind of focused heavily on the business side. But then I found my voice <laughs> and I found that I had something to say. And, and it is around what you just mentioned on trust. And once I found that I had something to say, then that's when I felt compelled to write about this. And and I came out with the speed of trust and then smart trust. And now this brand new book, Trust and Inspire. So I kind of have had two I mean, different first, careers along the way. Yes. Which which have you preferred of the two? I assume the I assume the latter, but maybe not. What which do you like the more? Are they just the equal but different? Um, I like them both, but I like what I'm doing now. I like the latter yeah, because I yes. feel like I found my voice. But I think that yeah. the fact uh, that I did the former and learned how to build, grow, run a business, build a brand, and, and turn this into something that was profitable and economic, I think that gave me credibility to yeah. do the latter because I'm not talking about trust as just a soft, nice-to-have social virtue, but I'm really speaking to trust as a practitioner how it's an economic driver, a performance multiplier, yeah. 
of everything we're trying to do. So I think that that doing the first career has given me more credibility for my second. Back when you first wrote Speed of Trust, there were there were already issues and, and, and trust issues, and, and you outlined that in that book. But, but when I think about the sort of the, the last 20 years and the journey, there are such noticeable absences of trust between institutions that maybe it used to seem a bit low trust. I mean, thinking between citizens and government or, or, or even citizens and, and, and businesses or, or the banking industry, or you could go on and on. It's like there really is quite a tangible deterioration in trust that appears to be happening right before our eyes. I mean, is this how you see it or you see it differently? No, I, I, absolutely, Greg. That's, that's what's happening. We're operating increasingly in a low trust world where the trust tends to be going down all around us. Trust in our institutions, you know, trust in government and media, political parties, in business, even in NGOs. And when and the danger of a low trust world is that it tends to perpetuate itself. Mm-hmm. And people become a little bit more careful, more mm-hmm. cautious, more guarded, because nobody wants to get burned. And then people respond back a little bit more careful, cautious, and guarded. And we can find ourselves perpetuating. A vicious downward cycle of distrust and and suspicion, creating more distrust and suspicion, and everybody feeling justified in the process. Distrust is contagious. That's a little bit of the world we find ourselves in. So we've got to counteract it intentionally. Distrust begets distrust. Distrust begets distrust. Absolutely. So – what I, another thing I think that's clever in this in this new book, Trust and Inspire, is that you're still speaking about trust, but you still have managed to now speak about it in in a in a different way, not in a derivative way, but in a, in a significantly different way than the way you've treated it before. Let me just ask you to give me like the simple value proposition of Trust and Inspire, and then we'll get to sort of yeah. what it all is. But what, what's the value proposition? Yeah, here's the value proposition. I make the point that the world has changed. We all know all the ways that it has. The world has changed, but our style of leadership has not. It's not kept pace with this changing world. We're still operating too much from an old paradigm, an old style of leadership that we've become better at, a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more advanced. Um, What I call command and control. And what's happened is we've become enlightened in our command and control. <laughs> so we're better at it and we're more advanced, more sophisticated, but we're still the fundamental paradigm of how we view people and leadership is still kind of coming out of the industrial age, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we need a new way of leading in this new world. You know, a new world of work requires a new way to lead. We can't lead the way we have in the past and be and expect to be successful today. And so I, I'm calling this new way of leading trust and inspire in juxtaposition to command and control, even enlightened command and control. So that's the idea, is that trust and inspire represents and signifies and is the name of the kind of leadership that is needed today in juxtaposition to command and control. And I mean, you and I have talked about this, you know, previously, but this idea that that command and control is a term that is, I mean, deeply ingrained in the management literature and also just in management you know, conversation, and it's just a linguistic norm. If we're talking about let's not do command and control, that's the old way right. of doing it. But without the language for what we should be doing, without the precise 
contrasting language, it's harder for people to know what to go towards. You know, if you're, if you're trying to, even if you're trying to work with your own children, to simply keep telling them what not to do it is insufficient because that doesn't educate them or guide them into what they should be doing, what they need to be doing instead. This, I mean, you feel, and I agree with you, that it's a significant contribution. It might seem just a linguistic, you know, it's a short phrase, but it's an important, vitally important thing to help people to know how to lead instead. Don't do command and control. You do trust and inspire. Talk to us about why you think that's so important to have that language and what your vision is for that phrase. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Greg, because it's one thing when we know what we're moving from, but it's a whole other thing when you know what we're moving toward, when we know that. And, and so to name it, to phrase it, like the expression goes, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. Mm. So we've got to know what we're moving toward. That's as, as, as important as what we're moving from. And we're all kind of clear that command and control is not going to work anymore. It, we're, we're, past, we're way past its expiration date. Even the more sophisticated, enlightened command and control. You know, that's not relevant as much today. But we're not nearly as clear about what it is that we need to do today and what to call it. Mm-hmm. And I hope that one of my contributions is to name it. Mm-hmm. And you and I had this discussion. In fact, you were extremely helpful to me, Greg, in, in kind of framing this, that it's not enough to be clear of what we're moving from. We've got to become crystal clear of what, we mo- what we're moving toward. Mm-hmm. And I call it trust and inspire in juxtaposition to command and control. It's a name. It's an approach. It's a style. You can put your arms around it. You can make sense of it. And it's also aspirational and inspirational. It's what Mm. we want. You know, who wants Mm. to be commanded and controlled? Compare that to who wants (laughs) to be trusted and inspired. Isn't that what we all want? it's 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 a great way of just framing that for a second is that nobody wants to be, or at least nobody I've ever talked to. I mean, not in, not in the, the cultures of the West at least, and maybe it is no one, but I, just the idea of being commanded to do things, controlled in doing things, there's something inherent in that when you think about it as, a, as the person receiving it that's violating. You, you, you say, like, I, I, am, I have agency. I, I am a human being. I have choices. And so to be commanded itself creates resistance. To be controlled feels awful whether it's explicit control or whether it's, uh, you know, underhanded, invisible control or right. someone's trying to, they're speaking enlightened leadership, but they're, but they're acting in ways that try to manipulate. All of this, we, we don't want it. So we want to reject it. And when you say, do you want to be trusted and inspired? I mean, yes, of course, it names it. It says it. Uh, I, I love this. And I know you've done work. I don't know if I should say, but we can edit it. But you've done work at Microsoft, and I know that, there's, that they feel this is important. Tell me a little bit about that, because I think that's relevant to this. Yeah, you, you, you think about it, how Microsoft has really been revitalized under mm-hmm. the, the leadership of Satya Nadella. And, yeah. you know, even apart from, you know, other changes in the marketplace and everything else, um, they, they had been somewhat fading, and not as quite relevant as they were before. They weren't quite as cool a place to work as they were before. This was, you know, a few years ago. 
income yes. sucks. We, we, all reme- we all remember Zoom, right? Yeah. I mean, this was after the iPod. It's years after the iPod, and it's still significantly below the innovation equivalent. So this company that had sort of helped to design, had invented the modern technology era, had at one time, I don't know how cool it had been, but it certainly was always on the cutting edge and bringing, you know, I remember back in the day, Windows 95 and all of this right. back in the Civil War years, you know, that, that, that and, and so, yes, so, so you have the Barmer years for 10 years, Satcher comes along, you know, there's been a shift. We, we can feel a shift. Tell me more about it. Yeah, and, and the shift really came about first and for, foremost through Satya's leadership style. Mm. Coming in, and he modeled the behavior that was needed to see. Humility, courage, authenticity, vulnerability, empathy, performance. He modeled. He trusted. He trusted his people. He trusted... In, in the capabilities, he, he adopted the growth mindset idea from Carol Dweck and others that, that there's great potential inside of people and we need to bring it out and trust people mm-hmm. to bring it out. And then he inspired by both connecting with people, but also connecting people to purpose, to meaning and contribution. He modeled, he trusted, and he inspired. And the net effect mm-hmm. was he literally revitalized, galvanized the organization, the capabilities, the talents, the creativity, the ingenuity, the innovation of Microsoft. And today, they're both winning in the workplace, have built a, a terrific culture that's, that's attracting and retaining, engaging and inspiring the best people and the best in people. But also, they're winning in the marketplace. They're far more yeah. innovative than ever before. And you see it in their stock price, you know, which has gone from, a, I think it was 30 seven or something when Nadella took over. Today, it's over 300. And, and uh, you know, one of, I think, two companies today that's valued at over $2 trillion. And so they're winning Seri- in the, in the workplace. It's a serious achievement. I mean, it, it, yeah. It, it, do you see that as the core value proposition, that you, that you win in culture and in the marketplace, that that's trust and inspire? Or do you see it in some different way? No, I do believe that that's it. See, when, I, when I say that the world is changing, and our style of leadership is not. The whole point is that, look, here's how the world is changing. Um, the nature of the world itself has changed through technology. The pace of change, the amount of change, the type of change, disruptive technologies changes everything. The nature of- Are work, those the five emerging forces that you talk about? Is that the five emerging The first yeah. is the world is changing through technology. The second is that the, wor- the work itself is changing. Far more collaborative, mm-hmm. interdependent, service-oriented versus just traditional manual industrial age only. The, na- the third is that the nature of the work uh, place is changing. The, the whole idea of work from home, work from anywhere, hybrid work, uh, intentionally flexible work, asynchronous work, all kinds of different um, you know, nomenclatures we can put on it. The nature of the workplace is yes. changing. The workplace, excuse me, excuse me, the nature of the workforce is changing. It's far more mm-hmm. diverse than ever before, as many as five generations at work. And the nature of choice is changing. We've gone from, from multiple choice to infinite choice. So now people have choices <laughs> and options. As Peter Drucker said, we're not prepared for this as a society, what's happening. Yeah. And so all these choices and options and all of those forces of change has really put a premium on two key imperatives. I call these the epic imperatives of our time. And the first is 
the need to create and inspire a great culture so you can attract and retain, engage, inspire the best people, win the war for talent. And my way of saying that is win in the workplace. And the second is so that we can collaborate and innovate and stay relevant in a changing world. It's changing rapidly yeah. and where you become irrelevant if you're not innovating. And I'm calling that win in the marketplace. So those are the mm-hmm. two epic imperatives, win in the workplace, win in the marketplace. And Greg, you can't command and control your way to a great culture. You can't command and control your way to collaboration and innovation. It's not relevant anymore if, as if it ever were. We've got to do it through trust and inspire. A new way to lead in this it's new world. A- Hey, listen, it's so valid. You cannot achieve the culture and innovation through this old command and control, right? Like that, that you, you can command and you control your way to certain kinds of results, uh, but you can't create those things. If you try to, to command and control your way to results, you will inherently get a culture that tilts towards the toxic, and so your innovation that requires this 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 safety so people can really be creative and ask questions and challenge the way we did it in the past and all of that just won't happen. So I, I think that's such a such a valid uh, you know uh, you know point of view to take on this. L- let me ask you. I think well, I don't know if it's a tricky question or not, but it's it's I think it's an important question. If do I guess it's a statement and a question. Do you see? command and control and trust and inspire on a continuum? I mean, do you see sort of command and control is at one end of the continuum, trust and inspire is this sweet spot, and that there could also be a, you know, the other end of the continuum, you know, that, that, that somebody could, in the name of trust and inspire, could go too far somehow, or they could create a, uh, I don't know, like a, like a, a a pre, I don't know, a fake version of what you're talking about. Could you go too far? Yeah. The first of all, that's the first question. Do you yeah. see it as a continuum? Yes. yes. No. Y- yes, I do. And and I and I, but I want to highlight on this continuum a uniqueness to yep. it. I do think there's clearly a continuum of command and control, and you know, there's the old industrial age, what we might call authoritarian command and control, and there's still some industries and some. Or some organizations, some leaders that operate author- you know, with authoritarian command and control, in some cases almost Neanderthal command and control. <laughs> but that's mm-hmm. less and less today because that's yep. less and less sophisticated, advanced, enlightened. More people have moved up that continuum to where they become more enlightened. They've, they brought things to it such as being trustworthy. They brought things such as um, strengths, and emotional intelligence, and and um, and mission, and other things, and they become more enlightened in their command and control. It's just though how they view people, how they view leadership, is still limited. It's still based mm-hmm. upon an inaccurate map, the old way of viewing mm-hmm. people and leadership. So I so I think to move from enlightened command and control to trust and inspire, while it, there is some element of a continuum, I think it's more like crossing the chasm. And it's <laughs> different, not in degree, it's different in kind. It's different yep. in kind. And it starts with our fundamental beliefs, our paradigm mm-hmm. of how we view people and how we view leadership. And until you shift the paradigm, you'll have a hard time truly with integrity shifting the style of leadership. 
So it's got to go to the fundamental beliefs, the paradigm of how we view people, how we view leadership. You can't act with integrity outside of the way you see a situation. That's right. So you're saying in order to, to change your behavior as a leader, you're really going to have to change the, the assumption. I want to come back to that in a second. Yes. The, the continuum point is that, that I, I was leading towards is really about what's the phrase? Have you given thought to this? What the phrase is, command and control, trust and inspire, for the kind of leader who isn't commanding control, but that they opposite, they're under managers. They're, you know, they're not commanding and controlling anyone. They're just absentee managers. Those people are also a tremendous problem. And yet the literature doesn't tend to deal with it as much. Anyway, I wondered whether you had made any attempt to come up with a phrase for that type of leadership. Yeah, your thoughts. Yeah, I haven't per se tried to label it and brand it, but it, 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 it could be an abdication. It could be a misunderstanding of this idea to where people have just moved into a counterfeit version. Maybe it's a counterfeit yeah. version okay, of so- Trust and Inspire where they're not providing real leadership. They're really advocating and, and kind of it's a laissez-faire push to the nth degree because the danger is to kind of think that command and control right. is just soft and, you know, just consensus only. And, and uh, you know, you talk around about feelings all day oh, trust long. Trust and inspire is soft. That's, you mean? I, did, did I say yes? Trust and inspire. The danger is if, if people thought that, start to yeah. think that trust and inspire is soft or weak and, and not, it doesn't have expectations, yes. it doesn't have standards. The point is you can be authoritative without being authoritarian. So this is not going to abdication. Yeah, and I love that. Soft, weak leadership so, without I've, structure, without vision. No, that's that's a counterfeit version of it. That's not going to be successful. Trust and inspire is strong, just like humility is strong. Yes, and courage, and and trust yes. and inspire authenticity is strong, and and as is vulnerability. So it's not weak and that. And so I would call that a counterfeit version mm-hmm. of trust and inspire and not the real deal. And now let's just take a moment for an ad break. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify. 
because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to our conversation. Okay, so I have a phrase for you. I I thought about this in preparation for our conversation. Avoid and ignore. That you have leaders who avoid conflict and ignore the problems. And that's like you avoid and ignore leaders. Then you've got the command and control on the other end. And now this is this, this, this third alternative to that. It's like better, as you said, in kind, trust and inspire. What's your reaction? My reaction is I love it. I love it. I love it because it makes the point, that, look, especially to command and control. So that's, hey, I'm in charge. I'm commanding and controlling. And, and, um, and so another kind of opposite extreme is avoid and ignore. I'm avoiding the issues, ignoring yeah. the issues, burying my head in the sand, hoping they go away, you know, being this abdication approach, avoiding and ignoring. And so in that sense, that positions trust and inspire as a third alternative, as a, as a, as a better yeah, idea that's basically that. taking this on. And it's not trying to command and control people, but it's also not trying to avoid and ignore the realities and the situations. Well, I like it. I think it's a, it's a, it's a legitimate problem after, I don't know, let, let's say 30 years of the leadership literature, you know, Arguing command and control is outdated, not having, as we said, named its proper replacement. That's what you're doing so well with this. But it means that in the that people sometimes I think they've done enlightened, uh, enlightened command and control, as you say. But sometimes I think they really have sort of said, "Oh well, I don't do command and control." Yeah, they're not. They're not <laughs> leading. They're not leading. <laughs> you know, they're avoiding having the conversation. And and as I think myself about my own experiences with leadership, of which is a litany of mistakes. You know, all all you know, we make mistakes all the time as you try to learn, lead in a business, lead at home, lead. You know, in conversations with people. One of the primary errors I have noticed is is not having raised an issue. You know, it's just avoiding the conflict. Oh, let's just not deal with this over here. It's just too, you know, and and so you just, you let, you know, it's like something pinches, but you don't want to deal with it. I don't have to deal with it. And you go on and on. And then that can lead to its own kind of toxicity. So we're, we're, you're being generous in in allowing this exploration here, but I think it helps to have that additional language uh, to make the case that you're making. Let, Let me ask you this. This is a tough one, really, but Actually, this is easy. Uh, you pose a question from the book to the readers, and I'm going to pose it to you. Okay. Uh, the question is, who trusted and inspired you? 
And I'm wanting for listeners right now to think for themselves about that question. Who trusted and inspired you? I want everyone listening to come up with a name. You probably already have the name. It it, it probably came quite quickly to you. It's own its own sort of uh, important message in how quickly it can come. Was it a teacher? Was it, was it a leader? Was it a family member? Was it a friend? Someone who trusted and inspired you. Now, over to you, Stephen. Who trusted and inspired you? Started with my father. When yeah. I was a young boy, seven years old, <laughs> is what I remember, then my first remembrance. And, um, and, it, and, and it's the story he wrote about in Seven Habits. Green and clean. The story of teaching his son, in this case me, how to take care of our lawn, our yard. And it's really a great illustration of a father believing in a young boy that he had capabilities even more than he knew that he had. And I didn't know Mm. what I had when I was seven. But my father (laughs) taught me through this green and clean process to take responsibility and to own things, and to re- and I developed my capabilities and my talents. And the net effect is he would he would sometimes tell this story as a way of illustrating what he called a win-win performance agreement. But but Greg, I was seven years old. I didn't know what those words <laughs> meant. But what I knew as right. a seven-year-old, what I knew as a seven-year-old was simply this: I felt trusted. I felt inspired by that trust, and I was you know too young to worry about status and everything else, but I didn't want to let my dad down. And mm-hmm. then it started with that simple idea. I felt it mm-hmm. in my home, in my life, that I had many, many other people who trusted and inspired me, including my first real boss, where, you know, nobody, be, nobody wanted me on a team. I'd been hired, but nobody, none of the teams wanted me. None of the partners <laughs> wanted me. And then suddenly one partner comes forward. His name was John Walsh. And he says, I want Stephen. I believe in him. Mm. At, at this point, I'd lost confidence in myself. He mm. believed in me, had more confidence in me than I had in myself. And what that did to me, how that inspired me, you know, I didn't want to prove, I didn't want to let him down. I wanted to rise mm. to the occasion, perform better, and I did. And mm. I love how you po- pose the question. I do the same in the book. You know, who trusted and inspired you to our readers? Because mm-hmm. most of us, if not all, have had at least one person, sometimes more than one. There are many in all walks of life, someone who believed in you, who saw the best in you, who who could see something that maybe you didn't even see in yourself and what that did to you, how that was a better way to lead, to help Hmm. you see what they saw and how you became a better version of yourself because of it. And that's a basic foundational premise behind this is the whole idea that people have greatness inside of them. And so my job as a leader is to unleash their potential for greatness, not to try to contain or control them. That's a fundamental paradigm of how I see people. It is profound when you think about someone who trusted and inspired you, that, that you, that it was noticeable and somehow tangible, but now it leads to a sort of the perfect next question, which is how do you communicate that? I don't just mean generally general principles of how you might do it. What words can you use to express this to someone that you really do trust them and inspire them? 
How do you communicate that? You say it. You communicate directly. It may look like this, saying, hey, I'm giving you this responsibility. Let me tell you why. Because you can do this. And I believe you can do it. And I believe in you. And I believe you have the right gifts and potential. And I'm here to help you develop some skills and some talents along the way and bring other people in to help and develop that. But I'm confident you can get there. And I want to help you get there. I see it in you. And I believe in you. And I'm here to help you succeed. And, and so mm-hmm. it's words like that. In fact, um, so oftentimes people feel like, hey, I, I, I extended trust to them. But the person often didn't feel it, didn't hear it, mm-hmm. didn't believe it. So mm-hmm. I think anytime you extend trust to someone, it's vital to tell them, I'm trusting you and I do trust you and I'm extending trust to you and here's why I'm doing it. I mm-hmm. love uh, Blaise Pascal's words. He said, I bring you the gift of these four words. I believe in you. That's simple. Just saying, I believe in you. I have confidence in you. You can do this. You can, you can bring the team together. You can lead this project. You've got the gifts. You've got the talents. You've got the skills. I trust you. And, and um, now look, we're not being Pollyannish about this. We're trying to really make sure we're setting people up to win. We wouldn't just do this generically in every situation. It's always tied to the job to be done, to, the, mm-hmm. to what you're trusting them on. So that, so that it's authentic, it's real. And, and, but you find the ways to extend trust to people and to tell them that you trust them and why you trust them and why they can succeed in what you've just given them. That's the idea. I think that idea of I trust you and this is why and being precise in why, you know, that's what helps keep it from being uh, unhelpful in general or stating what you don't actually trust them about. You know, you can be precise in what you're doing. I think it's just such a helpful communication tool for being able to communicate what we're talking about right now. And and I, I just want to make this observation. It seems to me that, well, this is my story. You can correct me. It seems to me that you grew up in a home where there was a lot of affirmation. And I remember that your father said that to me once about his mother. He said it this way. Uh, He said something like, I could call my mother up right now from anywhere in the world, anytime, and she would just affirm me and just say, you know, I love you. I believe in you. I think what you're doing is extraordinary. It matters so much. And and I, I, I seem to observe that he did that with you, although I didn't really observe that, but I have observed you doing it. I've seen you doing it with me. I've seen you doing it with other people. This seems like a very distinct cultural experience. Am I wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong. No, you're exactly right. I grew up in a home where my father and mother were very affirming, deliberately affirming, explicitly, but not gratuitously. It was, Mm -hmm. if it were just gratuitous, and wasn't tied to something specific or something very, very personal and real, it may not have had the same impact. Instead, yes. it was always, though, very specific, very intentional around their belief in me and why they believed in that and how they affirmed me. And that made it, that made it real. And it made me believe I could see this in myself. They always treated me according 
to my potential, not always my behavior. And they saw in me what I often didn't see in myself, but they helped me come to see it. That's what real leadership is. Can you help Can you help to give us an insight into, like, how often was that done? Was that, is this, you know, sometimes people can live years and not get any affirmation in, right. in their own family culture. So they're, they're coming into their own. They want to try and create, whether in their business team or their family, uh, you know, a, a, a more affirming culture. How often did you feel like you got it? Was it was it regu- was it every conversation? Is it every day? Is it every week? I mean, give me a sense of the habits or, or or norms around that. Yeah, I would just say this: it was frequent, and frequent. It sometimes might have been because of the circumstance. Maybe every day in in a circumstance mm. where maybe I was really taking on a tough challenge, and I was every time I would connect with my parents, I might hear some element of affirmation because they knew what I was trying to do. In other cases, frequent might be once a month that when we connect and got together, they, they might end our conversation with, you can do what you're, what you're charged to do. You can write mm-hmm. this book. You can work on this project. You can learn to present. You can learn to lead this business. And, and so frequent would vary depending upon the context and the circumstances. But the point was that it wasn't just haphazard or, uh, you know, just maybe once a lifetime. I felt, mm-hmm. I felt the affirmation, but again, what made it work was that it was, it was real and it was not just gratuitous. And it also was not a designed to be just a, a, a pump up motivational thing. Um, but mm-hmm. rather it was, it was truly around trying, it was trying to help me see what they saw in me and mm-hmm. that maybe I didn't see quite yet. That's why I say mm-hmm. it starts with the, the paradigm, the fundamental belief of how leaders see people. Do they see people as having truly a growth mindset? In other words, they're mm-hmm. capable of growing, of improving, of changing, of getting better. Because if you don't, if you think people are limited, then it might be inauthentic to tell people, you can do this. You can become this when I don't really believe that. And that kind yes. of affirmation will come across as disingenuous and really will be seen as manipulation, not affirmation. And it'll set you up for a problem because you're saying things that, that are actually more positive than the way you see them. So it seems to me that lots and lots of us are absolutely starving for the kind of affirmation we're talking about, the specific, you know, direct, clear feedback around this area. I, I was just reading something that, that described the difference between receiving feedback, and I think they described it as feedback versus being feed-smacked. You know, like, mm-hmm. like sometimes you get feedback that's so harsh and, and that, that you remember it for years. You know, it leaves a scar with you. And, and it's, it's easy to do that to others when we finally inelegantly get to feedback. But we're just talking about is it's I don't know what the the word would be the phrase feed smacked on one side and the other uh, try to name this but this kind of this kind of affirmation where we're clear and specific and and affirming of that potential within people I I I think there are plenty of people I'm going to advocate that it's the vast majority of people are starving for that affirmation that they just many many people never got it growing up don't get it in their daily interactions with people. And it's like, uh, it's, it's a need that isn't being met. Your thoughts? 
I completely agree, Greg. I think most people desire it, seek it. I like how you said it, are starving for it. Mm. And it's truly like giving somebody emotional and psychological air to, to share with them that you believe in them and that you see their potential and that you affirm them. And, and they often don't get it. They usually don't get it. They don't get it from other sources. And so to be that kind of person can be extraordinary. I love everything you're saying. I, I'm reminded of a, of, a, of a talk I listened to recently where the speaker was working with development of youth, uh, often in challenging circumstances, and somebody from – I think I think I'm, I may be making this up slightly, but, but, but somebody from Harvard was doing a little you know, research as to their successes and why it was successful and what was happening, and, and, and they, they knew – what they were being asked about were specific tactics, tools, and so on. But what they felt to say was, look, I mean, this was in a sort of uh, a religious context. And, and they said, they said, look, think of the power of teaching these teens that they are children of God, that they have that kind of limitless potential, what that would do for someone who's perhaps lived in an inner city area, or they just have never been affirmed by such a thought. And, and I, one can take from that the explicit point they're making or a metaphorical point of the power of having somebody affirm to you that you are more than you yet believe you are. I mean, that's, that's, that's a game changer. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. It is a game changer. Uh, I want to do one final thing with you. Okay. Uh, and, and actually, I have never done this before. These are, uh, lots of people have done them before, but this is rapid fire round. Okay. And what what I think is outrageous about this is that none of these questions lend themselves to a rapid fire questions. Uh, so so I'm going to ask you, and I just want you to give me like instant answers. Don't overthink it, but they're still supposed to be quite hard questions. So we'll see how this goes. Okay. Uh, one. What's most essential to you in one word? Faith. Why is that so important to you in one sentence? Because it is my faith that sustains me and helps me see everything else more clearly. Hmm. What have you said yes to that you most regret? Taking on a lot of different projects at different times that impacted what truly mattered the most to me, my family, um, my, my mission, my purpose. I forget mm -hmm. the expression. I know I'm going longer, but you know, the crime that bankrupts um, people and nations is to deviate from one's purpose to serve a job here and there. <laughs> I've too many times served a job that. here and there and moved away from my purpose. That's what I regret. Oh, amen to that. What is something essential that used to be hard for you that you've made effortless? Taking on difficult things, having the difficult conversations. Um, mm. It used to be I'd shy away from them because I, didn't, I don't want to be offensive and I just was worried people might take it wrong or I might lose the relationship. Mm. Instead, I've learned how if I will come in and declare my intent, 
Mm. Start with my motive of caring and then frame what, um, what I'm doing directly, but with love, with caring, with compassion, that I'm able to take on tough things and do it in a way that is helpful rather than being hurtful because my intent is to help, not to hurt. So when that's my motive, that helps me move forward with that type of activity. What's something essential to you that you're under-investing in? I, right now, I am under-investing in some of the very things we've been talking about, and that is hmm. building relationships one by one and really affirming those I care about and love. I do it, but not enough. I, I underdo it maybe by a factor of five or ten. And I do it, but not enough. This maybe goes back to your frequency question. Right. And and, um, I think I could do a lot more and still Mm. be specific, not gratuitous, very helpful, very valuable. And and, um, and so being reminded of the very thing I'm talking about and teaching is something that I want to do more of to really invest in the relationships. Because with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. And when I do that, when I invest in that relationship, all kinds of great things follow. It takes longer, but the payoff is enormous. Final question. What could you do in 10 minutes, like a single microburst, to do what you just said? Like what could you do in literally in a 10-minute cycle if you set a timer, 10 minutes to make progress on what you just identified? I can identify the four or five most significant, important relationships in my life. And write down a plan of what I can do and when I can do it with them, where I might find an opportunity to say, I'm going to invest in this relationship, declare my intent and let them know how I feel about them, our relationship and my belief, my confidence, my trust, my, 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 my true belief in them as a person, as a human being. I want to affirm them. I choose to affirm them. And rather than think about it, why not schedule the time of when I'm going to do this in this next week? I love it. You've inspired me to want to do that. This is such a good conversation. It has its own sort of beautiful narrative sense to it beyond what we'd designed or planned. Uh, I feel very, very similar as I come away from this with a very specific uh, you know, person in mind that I want to go and have this conversation with and also uh, do on a more routine basis what a difference it can make. Uh, I, I, I want to be a Trust Inspire uh, leader and uh, I'm sure everybody listening does as well. Okay, Stephen, thank you for being on the What's Essential podcast. Well, thank you, Greg. And, I'm, and I just want to say thank you for your help. You helped me think through this idea. You helped me frame this idea. You helped me express this idea. And it's a better idea because you were involved with me. And I thank you for that. You helped me catch the vision of we've got to name what we're going toward and not just what we're moving from. And I've become more clear about it because of you. You've helped me helped me identify what was truly essential about this idea. And I thank you for it. And our friendship, it means so much to me. Uh, that means the world to me. I, I, I love that for my tiniest contribution. Uh, we have come to that time again, the end of the show. If you have found value in this episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. The first five people to write a review of this episode 
will receive a copy of Trust and Inspire by uh, the great and venerable Stephen M. R. Covey. Just send a photo of your review to info at gregmcewen.com. That's I-N-F-O at G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N.com. Remember, if you do only one thing from today's episode, ask yourself of someone you wish to trust and inspire and go to them and tell them why you trust them, what potential you see in them, affirm them specifically and just see them light up. And if they don't, just do it a few times. Perhaps perhaps it needs, it needs a little more encouragement. Right. Uh, enjoy today, everyone. Enjoy this week. Uh, and tune in next week to hear another great guest and episode on the What's Essential podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.